Tensions have remained high between Russia and the United States since February 2nd over Russia's decision to suspend its last nuclear arms treaty with the United States. Combined with the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, fears of a new nuclear arms race have started to grow, which brings us to the question today of how we got here and what may happen next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Drew Stark. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today, our analyst is Emmett Bacalis. Hi, Emmett. Good evening, Drew. Thank you for coming on, Emmett. Thank you for the opportunity. And focusing on the international aspect today is Joshua Axton. Hi, Josh. Hello, everyone. Let's just get into the background information of this, guys. At the bare minimum, I just want to give our listeners a chance to know exactly what we are talking about. So I want to ask the simple question of what is New START and what does the START acronym stand for? START stands for Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, and New START was the last in a series of nuclear arms treaties signed between the U.S. and Russia, or the USSR before it. And this was the third START treaty after the START One Treaty of 1991 and the START Two Treaty of 1993. And it was a pretty successful treaty as it was renewed only two years ago in February 2021 by Joe Biden. But it had very narrowly survived because Trump almost got rid of it back when he was president. And what it is, it essentially just sets caps on the U.S. and Russia's arsenal of strategic nuclear weapons, which are larger nuclear warheads as opposed to tactical nuclear weapons, which are smaller ones that are more used for battlefield capacity. One of the critical aspects of this treaty is it permits inspections of each other's nuclear arms. And so it increases the communication between the countries, which is never a bad thing between the two largest nuclear arsenals in the world. To probe you further into that, Josh, you mentioned like regular inspections. Is that more of a safety thing to like increase communication between the power, two powers to prevent like any misunderstandings with these grave weapons that can do a lot of harm? Absolutely. So it ensures that the other is following the treaty because nuclear arms are a classic security dilemma situation. If one country feels that the other is breaking the treaty, then they have incentive to break the treaty themselves. And so if we have regular communication and inspections, it prevents this from happening in the first place. Why communication is so important is there was an incident in 1983 where a Soviet officer saw five ICBMs heading towards Russia. Luckily, he didn't do anything about it, which was a complete break of protocol, but it was a computer malfunction. And if he decided to, like he was supposed to, it would have resulted in widespread nuclear war. So that the role of these inspections is very pivotal within the two world's largest major nuclear powers and ensuring that any miscommunication doesn't end in mass destruction. But have there been any tensions for the treaty growing before this latest suspension by Russia? Oh, absolutely. A day before the treaty was suspended by Putin, the Ukraine had been visited by President Biden. Before this, they were halted due to COVID-19 protocols in 2020. So. They were supposed to be resumed in 2023, and the U.S. and the State Department have been pushing for this for months and released public statements that Russia is in violation of this treaty. And you're talking about resuming the inspections, correct? Yes. Yes. Do you have anything to say on this? Well, I'd like to add that after the treaty was suspended, Moscow attempted to put the onus of responsibility for restoring the treaty upon Washington, saying that the suspension is reversible and that Moscow will once again abide by it once Washington shows political will, makes conscientious efforts for general de-escalation, and creates conditions for the resumption of the full functioning of the treaty. 
That is a quote from the Russian Foreign Ministry. Yep. Uh, and you mentioned earlier, Emmett, that this was the latest in a long series of treaties, but that this also may be the last limit on Russia and American nuclear forces. Is that true to a certain extent? I can appealing to you both with this question. Yes, that is correct. This was the last nuclear treaty between Russia and the U.S. that was still in force. I'd also like to emphasize that this is the first time in about 70 years that the Russian and American nuclear forces are completely unhindered. So since thermonuclear weapons have been invented, we've always had armed treaties. And so there being nothing currently is unprecedented, completely unprecedented. Well, I would like to add, though, I, it doesn't really make much of a difference because the United States has 5,428 active nuclear warheads. Russia has 5,977. No matter if there's a treaty or not, that's enough to destroy the world many times over. So if they want to build more, that's fine. It's not going to make a difference in the long run. Even with the treaty, those numbers are way above safe levels of nuclear arsenal capacity. The, the one clarification, though, is that this treaty prevented an arms race, which is now up for determination. It's unlikely, according to experts, but it is now a possibility. Yeah, and I, I do want to ask you, Emmett, because you have expressed an opinion many are saying, as in people are taking the situation a little too bit seriously. But I also want to say that from my understanding, this treaty was less of like trying to... It also was trying to prevent an arms race, but it was more about restoring communication and trying to assuage fears with nuclear weapons. It's more restoring communication and being in active talks over that to prevent misunderstandings. Right, Drew, I would completely agree with that. This treaty was entirely symbolic, and its suspension by Russia is also entirely symbolic. It does not make much of a difference in terms of actual the outcome of nuclear war or the possibility of one. Yeah. I also want to get into the point of like the political situation within Russia because they're the ones who decided to suspend the treaty. So I want to talk about the rise of the Wagner Group, and I think I'll come to you first, Emmett, as our domestic analyst for that. Of course. So the Wagner Group is a private mercenary group that answers pretty much directly to Vladimir Putin, and it's been very – it's been more highly used in the most recent offensive on Bakhmut – in Russia than the Russian military itself. There are many reasons for that, and analysts aren't exactly sure of the exact reason. But the Russian military has essentially stepped back and allowed Bakhmut to be to be sieged by this private army. And recently, the leader of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prizogin, I'm not sure how, how his name is pronounced, has been online railing against the Russian military and Russia's top generals, accusing them of treason for not helping out Wagner more. And some believe that the Russian military stepped back to weaken the Wagner group and therefore weaken, indirectly weaken Putin's grip on the country. Others say that it's the opposite, that Putin is attempting to have the Wagner group secure more control of the front line and therefore increase his grip on the situation in Ukraine. But regardless, there are essentially two military forces operating within the Russian command at this point, Wagner and then the traditional Russian military, and they very often come at odds with one another. And I think that's part of why I asked this question, Emmett, is like, if we're talking about nuclear weapons, one thing is very important with the nation as nuclear power is clear command and control over all these facilities and the way they maintain these weapons, and if they should launch them, clear procedures on how to do so and when to do so. With these power struggles happening within the greater military bureaucracy of Russia, 
do you think that could worsen the risk of anything with regards to their nuclear arsenal? I think it could worsen the risk, but at the same time, it could also decrease the risks. Because if you think about it, Putin is supposed to have the final say on the use of nuclear weapons. He has a, uh, a nuclear briefcase, just like the president of the United States has. It has a you know a big button in it to launch the, the nukes. But in the end, those nuclear facilities and those launch pads are operated by other people. And when there's so many divided loyalties in the military, we don't know if the people who are there would actually carry out Putin's orders. Or really, when it comes down to it, who is actually in control of Russia's nuclear arsenal? And if the military leadership structure in Russia is unified enough that it could concert and execute a nuclear strike if Putin orders them to do so. Looking further into this, not just at the nuclear weapons issue, there's been Putin's attempts to like call for a new patriotism from the Russian population amid what seems to be like a waning enthusiasm and the growing discontent of the domestic population. So I wanted to ask you, how tenable is Putin's current situation and in any way, does his use of propaganda be able to propel this war further along? Well, I would say that Putin's grip on the country is still very strong. I don't see him coming out of power anytime soon. However, he does have a major issue, which is that Russia is burning through its, its recruits extremely fast. It's going to start burning through its draftees very soon as well. And that there's just a, really a dearth, a lack of young Russians who are supportive of the war and who are willing to lay down their lives for them. The Wagner Group does most of its recruiting in prisons with convicts who are there for life and have no other option and have to go, you know, die in some field in Ukraine. But when they burn through that group and they have to turn to young Russians who may, who have grew up outside of the Soviet Union, who are more open-minded to the West and are not as easily swayed by propaganda, then Putin's going to have a real issue. And he's been attempting to gain popularity with them. He actually enlisted one of the most popular pop singers in Russia named Shaman, now produces propaganda music for the regime. But whether or not these means will be effective remains to be seen. Looking more at like, I want to get into more Russia's nuclear stance, because you mentioned Emmett that Putin said continue to assert control and turn things to his own ends. And part of that is using his nuclear weapons now that he has no limits on it to posture. So I want to get into Russia's nuclear saber rattling. Is the elimination of New Start or the suspension of New Start going to change that in any sort of way? Well, as I said a little bit earlier, analysts generally agree that Putin isn't going to bulk up his nukes. He doesn't have the economy or the resources to focus on an arms race in any capacity. And so if the United States doesn't initiate an arms race, he's not going to initiate one either. He's publicly stated this as well. And... Only caveat is that Russia stated that they're willing to test nuclear weapons if the United States does as well, but they're not going to do so unprompted. They're looking for nuclear parity. Mm-hmm. And there's always been like the threats in Ukraine and some things that the West have taken seriously at the very beginning, but steadily continue to like maybe take it a little bit less seriously just despite continued threats of Putin to use his nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And I just want to get into the possibility or the winability if nuclear war of like if Putin decides to use his nuclear weapons in Ukraine will he do so and what would be the West's response on that that's a very difficult question the biggest thing is that Putin has publicly stated that nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought but if Russia starts losing the war I see them coercing the Ukraine 
with nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. It's it's very difficult though because how will the rest of the world respond to this? China in particular will not take kindly to this, even though they have an alliance of convenience. But all in all, we have to remember that even though Ukraine doesn't have nukes, will other nuclear nations respond in turn on the sake of Ukraine? Because mutually assured destruction has never changed. And the possibility of no one wins in a nuclear war. I wanted to ask, just because we talk about the suspension of Blue Star, which is a direct treaty between Russia and the United States, but there's also the non-proliferation treaty of nuclear weapons. Uh, would that have any effect on this? So the non-proliferation treaty, in theory, obligates all parties to, quote, pursue negotiations in good faith on effective measures relating to cessation of nuclear arms race at an early date into nuclear disarmament and on a treaty on general and complete disarmament under strict and effective international control. What that complicated quote means, it mandates negotiations and engagement upon all parties, nuclear and non-nuclear. But again, this is just a treaty and we know how Putin treats those. Yes. I mean, we already talked about the limits on the arsenal, and especially there's technically no limits now on the Russian nuclear arsenal in the U.S. earlier. But as you mentioned, Josh, that Putin won't start testing nuclear weapons unless the United States does trying to reach a state of parity. But I do want to get into the specifics of Russia's current arsenal amidst the suspension of the treaty. And I'll turn to you, Emmett, as our domestic analyst. Of, I want to ask, like, where does Russia's arsenal rank amongst the world and compared to the United States? Well, Russia currently controls the world's largest nuclear arsenal with 5,977 nuclear warheads compared to the United States' 5,428. Of that number, however, only 1,588 are active and deployed. And the rest are either in reserve or retired, meaning, you know, stored and deactivated but could still be reactivated if the need comes to it. But but like I said, there's never that need for that many nuclear weapons. It, the world would be long gone by that point. Russia has the capacity to, li- to deliver these warheads through land-based ICBMs, submarine-based ICBMs, and heavy bomber planes, such as the ones that were used in World War II. And as the president, Putin has direct control over nuclear arsenal, and the decision to use them, in theory, lies solely with him. Although the defense minister and the chief of the general staff also have access to nuclear briefcases. I also wanted to ask you, Emmett, if you know what part of this arsenal is deployed actively, because you mentioned who has the capability of like a nuclear briefcase. Do we know in any sense what portion of the Russia's nuclear arsenal is deployed actively and could be used at a moment's notice? Right. Like I said, 1,588 are active and deployed. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that for us. And then I asked Josh this question kind of earlier. Do you have any answer to the question of what do you think the chances are of Russia using nuclear weapons in Ukraine if the war turns against them decisively in some sort of manner? I'm inclined to say that it would never come to that point. However, I've been proven wrong in the past. I remember saying there's no way that they would ever actually fully invade Ukraine in December of 2021 when that was the big question. And look how wrong I was. So although I hope and pray they would never come to that point, really, I I don't feel qualified to make that call. I also know that not just like nuclear weapons, but also new types of missiles have been used by the Russians in recent days during the in the Ukrainian conflict of like hypersonic missiles. Do you have anything to say with regards to that, Emmett? Right. Recently, in the last in the last week or couple of weeks, Russia has been using new missile technology called Kinzhal's that it developed, which are actually the fastest missiles ever 
used in warfare. They travel at hypersonic speeds. They're so fast that air defense systems can't take them out. And there are rumors that Russia is attempting to arm these new missiles with nuclear warheads. That these would be nuclear warheads that travel faster than the speed of sound, that air defense systems would not be able to take down, that possibly even nuclear defense systems would not have time to respond before being struck by them. And although it has not been determined if Russia plans to arm these new missiles with nuclear technology, it is definitely a possibility. And I think this is one of the signs of the new arms race that Joshua was talking about that might be on the horizon, that perhaps the U.S. might try to develop its own form of this technology. And what you're describing, Emmett, I think is like a, a very present and overwhelming threat to both Ukraine, not just Ukraine, I think, but also the West in general. Yeah, I would agree. If these reports are true, then Russia may have a distinct technological advantage over NATO in the nuclear sector if such a confrontation were to occur. What's critical about this development is both Russia and the United States have what's called second strike capability. The idea that if they were striked first by nuclear weapons, they'd have the ability to retaliate anyways and destroy the other which is critical to the paradigm of mutually assured destruction. If these missiles can get past nuclear defense systems and take out the opponent's nuclear weapons, then the, the United States doesn't have second strike capability, and Russia's actually inclined to strike first in many, many game theory circumstances. Right, and Russia actually also employs an AI system called Perimeter, that can sense a nuclear attack and initiate a nuclear strike even if the human command has already been incapacitated. So even if Putin was taken was taken out by a NATO attack, he could still launch a nuclear attack from beyond the grave. As we kind of go over that dire proposition, I want to get into Russia's warnings and the nuclear amidst the nuclear industry, especially as recent events have come into it. I wanted to talk about Russia's warnings to the United States and U.S. reaction to that, and most specifically dive into a very recent incident where a U.S. drone was crashed into it by the efforts of two Russian jets over the Black Sea and things. So either of you have any comments on that and how that plays into the current situation and tension between the two powers? Absolutely. Dmitry Medvedev, who's the head of Russia's Security Council, has threatened that Russia losing the war could provoke the outbreak of nuclear war. And, quote, nuclear powers do not lose major conflicts on which their fate depends. This should be obvious to anyone, even to a Western politician who has retained at least some trace of intelligence, end quote. It's very clear that Russia is signifying to the U.S. that they cannot lose the Ukraine war, period, at the end of the day. And that it's in our best interest to let Ukraine lose the war. With this in response, Russia's gotten increasingly territorial. Most recently, there was an event where there was a collision between a Russian fighter jet and the United States MQ-9 drone, which is also known as the Reaper drone. This happened over the Black Sea, which is south of Crimea. And the United States has responded to this, calling it unsafe, unprofessional, and reckless. Antov, which is the Russian ambassador to the United States, has warned the U.S. not to enter it, as it had been identified as a zone for special military operations. He equated it as if the Russians had a drone near New York City or San Francisco. And the Kremlin has explicitly stated that Russian-American relations are, quote, at their lowest point. 
Mm-hmm. And just to clarify for our listeners out there, this was the U.S. drone, the Reaper drone, was over the Black Sea, as in this, and that's why Russia declared that as a combat zone for their special military operation and why they took the drone down. Yes. So it's under international law clarified as an international zone. Everyone has equal rights to it. But Russia made a bilateral communication in the United States. Hey, stay out. This is our backyard. And something else that's interesting about the story that I thought might be important to mention is that Russia has sent out teams to recover the wreckage of the drone, which shows that perhaps they believe that the United States may be using technology that they do not have access to yet and that they may be attempting to use the wreckage of the drone to develop that technology. I wanted to ask you more about Russia's nuclear industry and rumors of the Russian-Chinese relationship growing in that capacity as the war continues to move forward. Right. So Russia has a state-owned nuclear power company called Rosatom, and it is one of the world's largest suppliers of uranium and plutonium, which are two of the building blocks of nuclear weapons and have many uses for energy that do not have to do with nuclear warheads, but they are used for those as well. And recently, Russia and China have been increasing their trade of plutonium and uranium heavily. And there are many fears that Russia could be selling this plutonium and uranium to China in order to help them increase their supply of nuclear weapons, of which they actually currently have quite a small arsenal compared to the U.S. and Russia, not very large at all. And a lot of that is due to the fact their resources are not as plentiful in that regard as Russia's. But there are fears, according to the U.S. Department of Defense, that this new trade will contribute to China's significant and fast-paced expansion and diversification of its nuclear forces. So although Russia and China are not officially allies, this shows possibly the beginning of a military collaboration in the nuclear sector. And this wouldn't be the first time that this the Russian-Ukraine conflict has caused fears of risk with, within the nuclear sector, especially with the shelling around the Zaporizhzhia nuclear power plant within Ukraine, which is one of the largest plants in, Ukraine, in Europe at large, I believe. Since we're getting closer to the end here, guys, I want to wrap up some just final thoughts and get your conclusions based on all the information that we've gone through earlier. So I'll turn to you first, Josh, with this first question and ask you, Where do you think that the suspension of New START leaves us exactly as it stands? It doesn't make that big of a change by itself. The biggest change that occurs with the suspension of New START is it opens the doorway and leaves us vulnerable to an arms race in the future. And it makes nuclear relations a little bit more dangerous because there's a lack of communication that we had before and now no longer exists. Emmett, do you have anything to say to that question as well? I concur with Josh. This treaty was mostly symbolic, and its suspension is also symbolic. If there were to be a nuclear war before the treaty, after the treaty, doesn't make much difference. We're all dead, and here in the U.S. and Russia. So I think that it's worrying as a sign of worsening U.S.-Russia relations. However, does the treaty actually make us more vulnerable to nuclear war? I'm not convinced. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gets into my next question, Emmett, of how dangerous do you think the repercussions are for the suspension? And so it seems like you would err on the side of less dangerous than most people would have you believe or things like that. Well, so far, the U.S. response to the suspension has been pretty muted, you know, has been some strongly worded letters, and that's about it. 
if the U.S. were to respond more strongly and demand to, you know, to inspect the Russian facilities and then Russia said no way, then I would be a little worried because that's when tensions start to ratchet up even more. But so far, I think that the U.S. has responded appropriately in not taking the bait, not going for this Russian aggression. And I think that as long as we continue to make that our stance on the topic, it won't contribute much to the to the risk of nuclear war. On the bright note, however, Biden has maintained a policy of no matter what's going on in the world, we are open to discussion on nuclear arms treaty. So it doesn't matter what's going on in Ukraine, it doesn't matter what's going on with EU trade negotiations, he's open to discussing nuclear arms treaties. And the Kremlin has also talked about how they're open to discussions. However, if both sides saying, hey, we're open to talks, but no one's making an initiative to talk, then discussions will never happen. And I, I kind of prompt this last question based on the thoughts you've expressed previously of, is even now would be the best point for raising those types of discussions? You mentioned, Josh, that President Biden is willing to talk about nuclear arms treaties at any point in time, but with both Russia hyping up for a potential spring offensive in Ukraine, the United States continuing to send more weaponry and NATO as well to Ukraine, this may not be the best time and place for such a discussion of a new treaty that along the lines of New START. I think we have to start now. If we go any further, the war of attrition is going to continue to drag on Russia. Ukraine has the backing of the West, the economic might of the West behind them, and are continually getting armed by the West. So if the time to do it, it's now when there's still an opportunity for either side to back out and no one's put in a corner. What do you think of it? I think that if Russia, in honest and good faith, came to us for treaty negotiations, that's fine. But I don't see that happening. And I don't think we should hedge our bets on that happening. I think that the way to wear down Russia is to isolate them diplomatically. And I think that ignoring this provocation is the best way to do that. Well, this has been a great discussion. Emmett, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Drew. It's been a great episode. Joining me now to round out some of the headlines this week is our news briefer, Christian LaFont. Hey, Christian. Hey, Drew. Thank you for coming on the show. So what headlines do you have for us this week? Well, first off, there are massive street protests in Israel. Moldova foiled an alleged Russian plot. A cartel is turning over members involved in the kidnapping and murder of U.S. citizens. And Iran claimed prisoner swap with U.S., but the U.S. denies a swap happened. Some interesting headlines to cover. Let's start with the street protests in Israel. Yes, yeah, so the Israeli government is bracing for another round of protests after the country recently faced what some have called the largest ever street protests in Israel's history. The protests have arisen after a push by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to give the Israeli executive branch decisive power over the appointment of judges. The policies are unpopular enough that the Israeli government is facing possible mutinies for military reservists and a constitutional crisis regarding its security forces not taking orders from the government. The protests currently number around 200,000 members. A continuing story to definitely keep an eye on amidst the nation of Israel. And you mentioned the events in Moldova? Yes, Moldovan police have claimed that they recently foiled a plot of a number of pro-Russian actors that were attempting to cause unrest in the country. Moldova, which recently elected a government which is more favorable to the West than to Russia, has also dealt with recent bomb threats at its capital that the police claim is part of this same destabilization campaign. A grave situation that will continue to draw attention amidst the ongoing Ukraine and Russia conflict. And you mentioned the cartels in Mexico? 
Yes, five men from this Scorpions group cartel have been turned over to Mexican authorities, along with a note apologizing for their role in a kidnapping plot that led to the abductions of four U.S. citizens, as well as the death of a Mexican woman. Two of the abductees later died as well. This move by the cartel comes amidst calls for the U.S. to marshal military force against the cartels in Mexico, though notably, Mexican President Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador was staunchly opposed to the idea. A situation that it continue to have grave repercussions for sure. And our final story? Iranian Foreign Minister Amira Bidalian has claimed to news sources that the Iranian government and the United States government have come to terms on a prisoner swap. The U.S., in response to this, called the claim demonstrably false. U.S. officials went on to note that while they are committed to getting Americans out of Iranian jails, there is currently no prisoner swap in place. These claims come in the aftermath of the collapse of the Iranian nuclear program deal, which saw sanctions on the country lifted in exchange for a halt on their nuclear program. Some experts believe these prisoners are being held for the purpose of lifting those sanctions. Thank you very much for coming on, Christian. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jasmine DeLeon, associate producers Eric Bunce and Hamza Khan, technical producer Andrew Okuli and Bobby Kahl, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. And a special thank you to our outgoing associate producer, Hamza Khan. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.